All right, if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. If you don't have a Bible, um, take a look at your bulletin because uh, the, the passage is printed for you there. Uh, we've taken a couple of week break during the holidays, but we're back at it in Genesis. Now to finish the book, uh, we're gonna, my plan is to finish the book by uh, Easter. Um, so that's April the 9th. Easter is sooner than you think. Uh, but we're going to deal with the life of Joseph uh, during these last chapters. That's the, the focus of all the rest of Genesis, beginning with tonight's famous passage about Joseph's dreams. Have you all heard about this story? Joseph the dreamer? You all ready to hear about it again? Maybe you'll think about it in a different way tonight. Let's read. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. The word of the Lord. This morning uh, we talked about marriage and divorce and we talked about it from the perspective of Jesus' teaching. And, and we saw that Jesus was very zealous to bring us back to the design originally. Where the original design was no divorce. The original design was one man, one woman committed together for life, raising their children together. That was the design. That has been greatly broken apart, though. Throughout history, throughout time, even in our lives, it has in various ways uh, broken apart. Well, just in case you walked away from the sermon this morning thinking, well, God must not want to have anything to do with our dysfunctional families. Here we have this story. This story that came uh, thousands of years before Jesus, where God, even to bring his son into the world, Jesus would come from this family, by the way, y'all know that. God is using a family that is all kinds of messed up. All kinds of messed up. I mean, have you ever... Uh, been disappointed with how something turns out? I don't even have to ask it, do I? 
Of course you have. Everybody has been disappointed with how something turns out. Sometimes our expectations are way up here, and then there's the reality. Boo. Well, it's kind of that way with this family. I mean, God has talked this family up, hasn't he not? He's given promise and promise. Uh, we, we think that once Jacob has his 12 sons, boom, the heavens will part and the kingdom of God will come to earth and everything will be set right. And then you read this. And what you see are two things, if you'll look at your bulletin. First of all, you see disappointing dysfunction. The family, verses 1 to 4, is filled with problems. But then God sends some dreams to ponder, which actually the dreams of Joseph are more than just teenage boasts. Maybe Joseph used them that way. We'll talk about that in a minute. However, they weren't given by God to simply be teenage boasts. The dreams of Joseph actually tell us the source of hope for a dysfunctional family like this and also for dysfunctional people like us. Y'all want to hear about it and talk about it? Let's talk about, first of all, the dysfunction in verses 1 through 4. Look down at your Bible again at verses 1 to 4. Let's just list out, first of all, how many ways are there listed of dysfunction in the family of Jacob? Babies from not just three moms, four moms. That's right. Babies from four moms. Good. Keep going. Versus. Yes, favoritism and obvious favoritism. How does he make it obvious, Vivian? The robe. Yeah, the robe really sets it off. This is kind of one of the ways that Joseph is famous, his multicolored robe, uh, which the word could also mean, you know, robe with long sleeves. So we're not really sure exactly what the robe looked like, whether it was long and flowy or colorful or both. But either way, it stood out. It was kind of like a walking symbol that, hey, I'm the favorite. Nobody else got a robe like this, you know. Um, have you ever experienced that growing up in your house? Maybe one of the siblings getting something that none of the other ones did. And you're like, what's up with that, Mom? What's up with that, Dad? Well, this is kind of the way it is. Uh, a visible marker of, Joseph, of Jacob's favoritism. What else? Jealousy. jealousy. Absolutely. And a jealousy that really spills over into more than jealousy, right? It's more than just... Base level jealousy, it actually uses another word, starts with an H, hatred, right? There is hatred among the brothers. It says it how many times that they hated them? Count them up. At least four times in the passage, that's right. It says they hated him, and it keeps adding. They hated him more. They hated him more. It's like the more he did and the more he said, the more they hated him. In fact, in verse 4, the hatred has gotten so bad that they can't even speak peacefully to Joseph. Uh, in Hebrew, it says they could not even say shalom to their brother. Um, they couldn't even greet him without wanting to insult him or to express in some way their hatred have you ever been there with somebody uh, hopefully you know hopefully we don't get there too often and we don't and we know how to get out of there when we get there but 
we have to all admit, we've probably been there before where we can hardly even see somebody without a reaction like this. Think about it. This is the family that God is going to use to bring blessing to all the families of the earth? The patriarch has not followed God's commandment about marriage because he married four people at the same time. On top of that, he clearly shows favorites, not only with the row, but you'll remember when, remember when um, Jacob was going to meet Esau, he put the family in order so that the ones that were the least favorite would meet Esau first. Guess who was at the very end? Dear old Joseph. Dear old Joseph. Add to it, Joseph is a 17-year-old kid, so he's doing 17-year-old kid stuff. It says there in verse uh, 2, Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to the father. Now remember, these, bo- these other boys are grown men. Parents themselves by this point. Uh, Joseph is the do boy in the family business. And he's bringing his dad all these bad reports about his grown brothers. There's dysfunction everywhere. How is God ever going to use a family like this to accomplish his salvation? Well, before we talk about the answer to that question, let's just stop right here and just remind ourselves that being a person of faith, being a Christian, or in this case, being a a member of the covenant family, does not automatically take away sin, dysfunction, wickedness, and failings. Everybody hear that? You don't become a Christian and then, boom, all problems are solved. It's a process. Uh, We talk about the difference in Christianity between justification and sanctification. Do you all know this difference? It's very important. When you believe you are justified in an instant, which means in a moment of time, without any possibility of reversal, God forgives your sins completely, and he counts you as righteous, because of the righteousness of Christ, you're accepted. Nothing can ever, none of that can ever be taken away. And yet sanctification is a process. It's not a moment of time. It's not, a, it's not something that just even grows steadily. It's something that goes up and down and up and down. It's the progressive bringing of us into line with God's will, making us together more and more like Jesus Christ. That takes a lifetime. So when you become a Christian, sometimes what we have is an expectation that if I'm justified, then that should mean that I'll be automatically fully sanctified. Or I'm not going to be confident that God has justified me or accepted me until I have enough evidence in sanctification to feel like I'm, I'm there. Have you ever wrestled with those things? Now, I don't want to take away from the fact that the evidence in your life ought to show that you have been accepted by God, of course. But let me tell you, if you're looking only to the evidence in your life for confidence that you're justified, you're probably going to always struggle to know that you're accepted by God. Because you're going to look at your life, and I'm going to look at mine, and we're going to look at our families and our church and all the things that we do, and we're going to see so much in it that we know is not the way God wants it to be yet. Think about your life. 
What are some of the things that you see right now today that you know is not the way God wants it to be? You don't have to answer out loud, but just think about it. Now, how do you respond to those things when you see them? I want you to answer this one out loud, okay? When you see things that aren't the way, you know they're not the way God wants them to be, how do you respond to that? You cry, okay? Yeah. There's a lot of tear-worthy things in my life too, right? What else? Yes. Help me. Yes. It should drive you to prayer. You know, help me, Lord. What else? Yeah, okay. So there's also negative ways we respond, right? We try to, oh, okay, well, it's not that bad, you know. It's not as bad as, you know, not as bad as Bob. <laughs> you know, okay, so at least I don't have that problem, right? <laughs> we do that, though, don't we? Well, why do we do that? What's that? Puff ourselves up. Well, why would we want to puff ourselves up? So we wouldn't feel so bad. We want to be king. That's good. That's right, yeah. Instead of, instead of saying, all right, I fall short of Jesus. I know that God judges with righteous judgment. But while he's still working on me, I'm going to take refuge in his righteousness. Instead of doing that, which is what we're supposed to do in the gospel, take refuge in justification, even while sanctification's on its way. Instead, what we often do is we try to pretend sanctification in order to build our own sort of sense of self-righteousness for our justification. And it throws the whole thing off. Uh, God writes stories like this in the Bible. He shows us the way he works with his people like this in embarrassing ways so that all of God's people through all time would learn how to not be surprised when they see defects in their lives. And at the same time, not to be satisfied with those defects. Okay, you're not surprised by them, but you're also not satisfied with them. And at the same time, you don't lose hope that God is also going to heal those defects. Which is exactly what he does with his family. At this point, Jacob's family doesn't look like much. It certainly does not look like the kind of family that would save the world. By the time you get to the end of Genesis, it's a different story. And I can't wait to go through it all with you because you're going to see step by step how God is meeting this dysfunctional family and fixing one thing after the other, building them in sanctification step by step. Not just Joseph, but the other members as well. So that at the end, you really do see a family that is being saved, a family that is being perfected by God's mercy and grace. Right? We as Christians are not immune to these same things. Dysfunction, sin, past, present, future, and all the dysfunction that sin causes will be a feature of our lives until our dying day. And yet we have this wonderful hope. Philippians chapter 1. 
He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Did you know that verse? I think you ought to memorize that verse. Philippians chapter 1. Somebody help me with the reference. Is it 13? Is it 14? Or 12? I don't know. Philippians 1 something. Six. Six. Really? Six. Okay. Earlier than I thought. Um, Memorize it. He who began a good work in you should complete it, will complete it, until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the source of our confidence. Is it six? I love it. Yes. Yes. Amazing, isn't it? Joseph was born into a dysfunctional family. He himself, at 17 years old, is not ready for what God has for him to do. He's got dysfunction too. In fact, a lot of the rest of the story is going to be about how God humbles Joseph because he doesn't seem all that humble in this story, right? Uh, You do kind of want to take Joseph by the collar in this story and say, Joseph, there are some things we just don't say out loud. (laughs) Yep, that'll help you in life if you learn that. (laughs) Some things you keep within. Um, Joseph's going to learn all that. And And it's going to be through very hard circumstances that he learns it. Very hard. I mean, Joseph's life is dark in some places. It's extraordinarily dark. Um... Uh, a guy named Ian Duguid wrote a book, a great book about Jacob, which I've mentioned to you while we were going through his life. He called it Living in the Grip of Relentless Grace. And I think that expresses Jacob so well. Well, the same author wrote about Joseph, and he said it was living in the light of inextinguishable hope. And I think that equally expresses Joseph's life. His dad knew relentless grace. He knows inextinguishable hope, even in some of the darkest moments of his life. Hope shines through. And so let's look at this second thing, which is where we want to spend the rest of our time, the dreams to ponder, because there's more to Joseph's dreams than just a teenager's wishful thinking about his dominance over his brothers. God has actually sent him these dreams to foretell how he's going to fix this dysfunctional family. And actually, the dream also foretells how he's going to fix this dysfunctional world. Y'all ready? It's a big thing. I'm going to show you. First of all, let's look at the dreams themselves. Okay, the first one is agricultural, and the second one is astronomical. Uh, they're very easy to understand. The, the, the brothers, when Joseph talked about them, clearly knew what he was trying to communicate. In the agricultural dream, they're out uh, reaping the uh, wheat harvest, and each of the brothers gathers their own sheave. A sheave is a bundle of stalks of grain that you tie together to bring it into processing. Each of them have their own sheaf. Uh, When they all gather their sheaves together, Joseph stands upright. It just stands up. And all the other ones fall down at its feet. Pretty simple dream, right? (laughs) Pretty simple dream. Now, whether uh, Joseph should have shared it again, well, that's, uh, you know, beside the point. I think maybe had he not shared it, it might not have been recorded here, so it's probably, it was from the will of God that he did share it. But it didn't lead to very good things because it says the brothers responded in verse 8 by severely rebuking him. Are you indeed to reign over us? It was as if they thought this was the craziest thing they've ever heard. Are you, you meaning to tell me, Joseph, that we are going to bow to you? And they hated him even more. 
And then the second dream, the astronomical dream, makes it even more pointed because here you have the parents involved too. Mom and dad are the sun and the moon. And his brothers are 11 stars. And it says, in my dream, behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. This time his dad jumps in. Now, I love the way Jacob responds. Look at it again, if you didn't notice it. At first, he rebukes him. What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Okay. Why do you think Jacob asks it that way? He is. Yes. It's still different, isn't it, than the way that the brothers had asked it. Did you see that? How would you compare and contrast his question with the brothers' questions? One is, yeah, kind of like, not necessarily indignant, but maybe like, really? Is this really what you dreamed? And like, as he says, is, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Are you sure you got it right? Are you sure you told it right? Is this really going to happen? Whereas the brothers are saying basically, no way ever. Not on my dead body, kind of. You kind of get that sense from the brothers. And the reason why you know that is what it says in verse 11. The brothers were jealous of him, but his father did not say this from a place of jealousy. In fact, it says, what did his father do? kept it in mind I like the King James version there he pondered it actually the same uh, phrase used for Mary in the Christmas story when the shepherds came and told Mary all that they had seen about Jesus and it said she kept these things in her heart and treasured them why would it use the same phrase for Mary as for Jacob here Yeah, yeah, Mary didn't, Jacob didn't. They weren't dismissal, they weren't dismissive, excuse me. What else? What, are they both, what do they both think they're responding to? God, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they had this sense that, wow, something from God is afoot here. I might not know what it is. I might not understand it. I might not be quite ready yet to accept it, but there's, you can get this sense of the fear of the Lord in them, which is why they take what they hear and they begin to kind of meditate on it. They don't respond to it like a 17-year-old's jabbering. They respond to it as the Lord might be saying something. In fact, throughout the Bible, God uses dreams this way. Now, I'm not saying that every dream you have is a message from the Lord. Uh, actually, please don't take me to say that because it's, usually it's not. Usually it's you ate uh, Lunchable too late or something, um, which always, you know, can end badly. Nothing against Lunchables, but they're just, you know, not good in the middle of the night. Have you ever tried it? Some cra- it's, 
It's some crazy dreams if you eat the Lunchable too late. Right? Yeah, try it. Try it and then write back. Dream, dreams are not always a communication of God. In fact, I would say this happens very rarely, if at all, today. It happened for a specific reason during the Bible uh, that is documented in the Bible itself. As God was revealing his will to people through his son Jesus, one of the primary ways that he often showed it was through visions and dreams. In fact, everything that God does, he does according to a plan that's already been predetermined by himself. Everything. Uh, God is not like us. He doesn't make his plans as he goes. He plans ahead, but he doesn't even plan ahead the way we plan ahead because even when we plan ahead, we plan ahead in time. We plan ahead in time in response to things that have already happened that we think might happen. God plans in eternity, meaning the plan is already complete. The plan is already perfect. What he does in time is execute the plan. And as he executes it, he doesn't leave his people in the dark all the time about what he's about to do next. Often he reveals to them what those next steps will be. And he chooses to do so many times in the Bible through dreams. These dreams that were revelatory, given to people like Abraham, Moses, David, Joseph, Daniel, even foreign pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar and um, Pharaoh, had dreams as well that were revelatory from the Lord. God is revealing a little bit of his future plan in the present in order that people would know enough to be able to trust him, to be able to hope in him, and to be able to love him. God doesn't reveal his future plans just to satisfy people's curiosity. He does it so that we will have the material we need to trust him. This is exactly what he's doing, I think, in this story with Joseph. He's making a future promise, the same promise, in two separate dreams. In fact, if you fast forward, spoiler alert, to the end of Genesis, exactly what Jacob dreams here comes to pass in the last chapter. Did y'all know that? You probably did. What happens in the last chapter? Somebody summarize. The last chapter? Yeah, of Genesis, yeah. Or the one before the last. The last? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, one before the last. Um, his dad does come. Yes. And, all... and the brothers come. And, and Joseph has stood up above everybody else. In fact, he's the second in command in Egypt of all places, the biggest empire in the world. And all the family does come and bow before him willingly. And by bowing to Joseph, they are saved. And actually the whole world is saved by bowing to Joseph because he has kept back all that grain for the famine to feed the world. The family in bowing to Joseph goes from being a dysfunctional family to years later being a family who's ready for world mission. Let me say that again. Here they're not ready. They're fighting each other. They hate each other. They can't even say shalom to each other. And Jacob doesn't know how to lead them because he's got more than enough on his hands with four wives and however many kids, right? It's a crazy mess. And yet at the end of the, of the thing, at the end of Genesis, when they all bow before Joseph, it's at that moment that the family is ready. 
to embark on the next phase, which is life in Egypt, to be saved by God, to be brought in the promised land, to become the people of the Messiah. Wow. The dream God gives Joseph is not just a 17-year-old kid making stuff up. God really was showing Joseph how he would save his dysfunctional family. Now, nobody, do you think any of the family members, including Joseph, knew how this was going to happen? No, I don't think so. I don't think they had any idea. Had they known, they would not have done what they do next, which is to reject Joseph. We're going to see next week they try to kill him, and then when that doesn't work, they sell him into slavery. And then they act like he died, you know, to their father, who is heartbroken over the whole thing. They wouldn't have done that had they known exactly how it was going to play out. They rejected what God had revealed to them. But God begins to work in spite of their rejection. He begins to convince them over time to become the kind of people who will be willing to bow to Joseph and receive the salvation that God is bringing through him. Now, I said a moment ago, dreams... Revelatory dreams don't usually happen anymore today. So how can we have hope in our future if God's not sending us wonderful messages like this? Has he, Bob? Tell us more. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, tell us more. Yes. In fact, the collection of all the dreams that God has ever given are in the Bible. This dream, in fact, I think, points to an even greater, an even greater son, a beloved son, in fact, who would do the very same thing that Joseph would do. Do you know who I'm talking about? Jesus, yes, Jesus, the beloved son of the heavenly father. Now, what did he do like Joseph? Let's think about it. This is important. He was hated by his brothers, sold for money, went into a pit. He was a beloved son, hated because of that, right? He went around telling people, I'm the beloved son. And everybody was like, you're a blasphemer. He talked all about what he knew from his father. In other words, he spoke his dreams. He spoke what God had given him, the word. And people did not receive it. They rejected it. In fact, the quote there in, uh, this is no accident, I don't think, but the quote there in verse 8 that the brothers say, don't you know in the Gospel of John there's a place where the Pharisees say almost exactly the same thing to Jesus? Where they they basically say, will this man reign over us? How else is Jesus like Joseph? He went to Egypt, came out of Egypt. He showed compassion on the brothers, as Joseph did at the very end. Stripped of his clothing. Yep. Falsely accused. There's more. Everyone bows down. Because just like 
Joseph, um, after Jesus is sold and put down into the pit and brought down into the prison and the death of the cross, like Joseph, he was lifted up from that place. In fact, he was lifted up to another right hand. Not Pharaoh's, but God's. So that he could not only store grain for a world in famine, but that he could be the bread of life for a world in the famine of sin. He stored it up and is at the right hand of God now so that anybody who comes and bows before him receives that bread and lives and does not die. Folks who hated Jesus, when they all get together and bow before Jesus, stop hating each other and they stop hating Jesus, just like the brothers of Joseph would end up doing. Do you see it? Right here, there is the gospel in Genesis already. This is not just a picture of how God will save this one particular family through Joseph's death and resurrection, so to speak. But it's actually a picture of how God will save all the families of the earth through the death and resurrection of his beloved son, Jesus. But here's what it requires. Here's what it calls you to. You've got to bow down. You've got to bow down. You've got to come to him, seek his mercy, and bow before his feet. You can't keep hating him. You can't keep asking scornfully, shall this man reign over me? You have to come and you have to humble yourself before Jesus in order for your dysfunction and my dysfunction to get healed. Pause for thoughts. This is your turn. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, was it unusual in that time to bestow such an honor upon a favorite? Was he being swept mm -hmm. away with the culture, or was it abnormal to give that to your eleventh? It was. It was not. Ab it was abnormal to give it to your eleventh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did read about this actually uh, this week. In fact, so glad you asked it. Um, he, it was very common to give a robe like this or some other sign like a ring to the oldest son, the one who would inherit. The difference here is that he chooses to give it to his, almost his last son. He has one more son after this, by the way, Benjamin, but at this point he's still a toddler. He gives it to his youngest sort of adult son, Joseph, which is what made him all mad. It should have gone to Reuben in the cultural expectation. Of his favorite wife, yes. <laughs> of the one he originally wanted, right? Yes, that's right. I'm sure that's how he probably thought about it. Uh, but it wasn't yeah. unusual for the culture to do that. No. No, no, it was a, it was a very uh, primogenitor was very strong, right? You, you, everything passed to the eldest male, that, and, and then to bestow the favoritism on that male was not an uncommon thing. 
He probably did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he had been tricked into Leah, um, you know, in his mind, and he, he had been tricked into Leah's servant, Bilhah. Uh, he had been tricked into uh, Rachel's servant. So he, he may have thought Rachel was the only one I legitimately, you know, married. <laughs> Could very well be. Yeah. What else? Carrie? There were, yeah. It sure does, yes. That's right. Yeah, and one of the things I like about that, Carrie, is at the end of the Bible, the very last chapter, it says that heaven has 12 foundations and 12 gates. The names of the 12 sons of Israel are on the 12 gates, and the names of the 12 apostles are on the foundations. You know, so that's just a symbol for the fact that all of God's people are based on those first 12 and then the new 12 with Jesus. You know, pretty cool. We all come from here. This is our story, which is why, you know, we're able to take it and be encouraged by it and learn from it. This is the way God deals with us because he dealt with our fathers this way. And we can do the same thing with the apostles who are, in a sense, the new leaders of the 12 tribes. He's got a renewed in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Clint. It's just a, it's like a literary possibility that there's that many. <laughs> I think so too, yeah. Yeah. He goes to prepare a place for them, right? Yeah. He does, yes, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yes, and so remember that when you're discouraged by your own dysfunction. Yeah. Remember that when you're discouraged by your own, the, the parts of your story that you don't like. Remember that, because there's something in it. I can't tell you exactly what purpose God is carrying out in your particular circumstance. I'm not him, but that he has one is abundantly evident in the Bible, you know. There's a redemptive purpose. Mm. But I, and I agree with the first thing you said too, Clint. It's a literary impossibility. <laughs> it's just too, uh, you know, people have from the beginning, uh, you know, going all the way back to rabbis before Jesus, they've seen in this story messianic significance everywhere. Uh, Joseph is sort of like a type of Christ in the mind of both Jewish and Christian uh, readers of this for the ages, you know. All right. Well, are you excited to hear the rest of the story of Joseph? So you'll come back? (laughs) So you'll invite your friends? Because I, I really do believe this, um, this story is worth our attention. Um, there's so much here. I mean, every week we're going to see something wowing, kind of, at least I think it's wowing. Uh, and every week we're also going to see something uh, very practical as well, just like this week. Um, and the main practical thing I took away was 
especially off the sermon this morning. Every one of us is dysfunctional. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has broken the commandments of God. So there's no use in those of us who aren't divorced, for example, pointing at those who are and saying, boo, you know, we all have fallen short. And yet in Christ, he's working to bring us all to bow before him so that our dysfunction might be healed for his glory. Wow, that's good.